You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Well, last time we got into the area of application in our process that we've been looking at. What do I do with what I see in Scripture? Is there something to obey, something to avoid, those types of things? So I just wanted to uh, see if there was uh, anything that uh, you might have as far as questions concerning that. Anything about last time? Okay, well, why don't we, uh, why don't we look at some questions then? Page 20. And Nehemiah chapter 8. Let's look at Nehemiah chapter 8. It's a great passage to illustrate much of what we've been talking about and just how, how do we handle the Word of God. And uh, it's, a, it's a great lesson to look back and see how it was done then. Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 1 through 12. The, uh, the nation is back in the land. They were back commissioned to rebuild the temple. And it had gone uh, sort of well, but uh, they'd gotten it started, but they had stalled. There was opposition people around them. They had gotten discouraged, and uh, they had to be reminded to uh, get back to doing what was the priority, and that is to build the temple so that Yahweh could be worshipped. And so uh, Nehemiah is uh, sent back to uh, sort of help ramrod that thing. And uh, in chapter 8, verse 1, it says, And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the books of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood, and I won't go through all the names, uh, some on his right, some on his left, verse 5, And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, and then there's many more names, this group of people, the Levites, it says, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. And now verse 8. They read from the book of the law of God clearly. What would we call that? Observation. Observation. Okay. And they gave the sense. What would we call that? Interpretation. So the people understood the reading. And then verse 9, And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. What would we call that last section? Application. There it is. There's all three of them right there. Reading of the law and uh, telling them what it meant, giving the sense of it. Okay, And then, of course, applying it. Because when they heard the law, they were grieved over what they were hearing. It convicted them. But the application was, uh, go and uh, do not mourn or weep. Go your way. Eat the fat, drink the sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing. Do not be grieved. And the result, this is number two on page 20. The result in verse 12, and all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because 
they had understood the words that were declared to them. So the result in verse 12, all the people did what they were told to do. They made application, and the result was what? When they did what they were told to do. That's that first blank under two. If your kids do what you tell them to do, would you call that? There you go. Obedience and to make great rejoicing. What do we call that? What is it? Worship or and or? The joy of the Lord is your strength. They rejoiced. They had great joy, right? Okay. And which kind of comes full circle with that with that verse. They had great make great rejoicing. They had joy. They had blessing, which was their strength. Okay. You see the connection there? The joy of the Lord is your strength. Okay, so there's all three of them right there um, in the history of the nation of Israel as a, as a great um, uh, illustration of what we've been talking about and our model for how we hope to do it as well. Because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Okay, what a, what a great outcome. Okay, now if you're a, a Bible teacher, an expositor, a preacher, you can't ask for anything more than that, right? I mean, if you're telling your your kids, or even you're witnessing your faith to somebody else, um, right there, they had understood the words that were declared to them. Okay. Now, number three, read Paul's exhortations to Timothy and 1 Timothy 4.13 and 2 Timothy 4.1-4. through 4. So 1 Timothy 4.13. Now we're going to see a New Testament example. Paul to the younger... He is... Um, it's often called... These are often called the pastoral letters, but... Technically, Timothy really wasn't a pastor. He was an apostolic representative. Sometimes the older term is legate. He was there doing what Paul wanted him to do um, there in Ephesus. And in uh, 1 Timothy 4.13, he says, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. Which one's that? Observation. Observation. The people are going to hear it. So it's going to be put in front of them. To exhortation, a little, little out of order here, okay, to teaching. Interpretation. Interpretation. There's a result of, the result of teaching, telling people, and, and is back in uh, Nehemiah, giving the sense of what the Word of God is. And uh, that word exhortation there is also used down in chapter 5, verse 1. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. It's a pretty commonly used word, parakaleo, para alongside, kaleo to call, and it means to call alongside, okay? And it has a range of, of usage and meaning, but it, it essentially means to call someone alongside to uh, say something to them to change their behavior, okay? Oftentimes it's translated encourage or even comfort, Okay, um, but that word comfort comes from the Latin comforte, give strength or with strength. Okay, and so it uh, our sort of our psychologized, Americanized uh, language. We think comfort, oh comfort, comfort me, you know. But it really means to give courage, give strength. All right, and it's used in a wide range of ways. What about Second Timothy four one through four? Paul's last letter to Timothy. He wants to leave him with the marching orders that are the most important things. So in chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, he gives this great charge to him that uh, comes right on the heels of making reference to the Scripture. Back in chapter 3, verse 16, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching. That's one of our foundational verses we've looked at many, many times. And uh, prior to that, he says that uh, from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. So he uses the word sacred writings, and then he uses a synonymous term, scripture. Okay, And then uh, uh, in chapter 4, verse 1, he gives him this charge. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Kerukson Lagan, he says. Strong command force verb to preach the word. And here's what it's here's what it looks like. Here's what it's going to look like. Be ready in season and out of season. 
reprove, rebuke, and exhort, that by the way is that same word, parkalo, with complete patience and teaching. Now you can see it's a different set of words, but all the, all the issues are right there, okay? Um, and by the way, some of preaching, those couple of those are negative. They're that way by design. All preaching is not designed to make us feel good. It's sometimes it's confrontational. Uh, it's designed to apply the word to areas of our life that we might need to uh, make some serious changes, okay? But there's the same set of um, range of um, what we've been seeing in our study, okay? Any uh, questions so far on what we've seen? Well, I think, sure. Um, I don't think you necessarily have to preach formally from a pulpit. You can proclaim it. And there's many other passages that call us to uh, communicate the Word of God and share our faith and so on. Um, you can even take the word keruso uh, there, can even be proclaim. It doesn't have to necessarily be, it's usually translated preach in that context. Um, but um, I think no matter what we do, we can. We can do all three of these. We can share our faith with somebody, and, and you share Christ with somebody, you have to get down to making an application in their life at some point. Um, we we're supposed to. So I would say, yes, it's specific for Timothy, but it has broad application to everyone in the church. And you can just bring it back around and put it underneath the, the Great Commission, too, as well. You know, Make disciples. It's part of the disciple-making process. So, so I think you definitely can apply it. Any, any believer can apply this, can and should apply this in their lives. And it's a strong command force verb. Okay, anything else? Okay, what about um, number four? Anybody read A.W. Tozer's quote? 1955 that was made. I had to do a double take when I saw the date on that. I mean, uh, he... he he pulled out the old uh, baseball bat on that one. But it's also interesting. You go back and you read what Spurgeon went through back in the 18, late 1870s, early 1880s. And the way he describes uh, a lot of the British preachers and what they were doing and what they were getting into, it, it, it reads like something out of the you know, 21st century. Same kinds of things, you know. They'd abandoned the Word of God. And they were entertaining people and giving people what they wanted to hear and that type of thing. So, um, yeah, nothing new under the sun. You abandon the Word of God, you're just going to be off into all other kinds of things. And uh, usually it's something that's going to tickle people's ears. And uh, that's also, that's what Paul says right there in that passage. Time will come when people will not endure sound teaching, healthy teaching, but have itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, their own lusts. In other words, they determine what kind of teacher they want. And uh, we'll turn away from dis listening to the truth and wander off into myths. I think I've mentioned a couple times. We'll turn away. That's an active verb. They actively turn away. But wander off is passive voice. They will be led astray. Okay. You abandon the Word of God, you make an active choice to abandon the Word of God, and however, whatever way, at some point in time out in the future, you will be led astray. Okay? Maybe not next month, maybe not next year, but uh, you set yourself up to be led astray. Okay? So, anything uh, else, any other questions you might have on any of that from last time? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, it is. And it's easier to get a big audience. Because you're, you're appealing to the flesh, okay? You're, when you appeal to the flesh, that's very attractive. You're going to get a lot of people come. The, the Bible is an offense to the carnal mind, okay? Always. And if you take away the offense, the only thing you have left is the flesh. And it just boils down to entertainment. Easy to build a huge, massive church, massive following um, that way. Okay? You can see it all, all around us. Well, this, this evening, uh, we're going to move toward closing some of these gaps that uh, Dr. Zook talks about in, in the uh, reading. And so what I did basically was just to follow his basic outline through the reading, okay? Because I thought it was really good, and it was going to be pretty practical for us to do that. So um, we're just going to start out on page 21 and, and uh, talk about what does it mean to apply the literal hermeneutical method to what he would call the grammatical gap, 
Okay, we're talking about different languages than what most of us probably speak. Uh, we spent a little bit of time last time trying to do that a little bit with uh, Hebrew. Okay, and um, so my advice to you, if you want to study Hebrew, do it when you're really young and your eyes are still good. You know, as you probably noticed, <laughs> I do have a magnifying glass by my desk with a little light in it to see those those vowel points. That vowel pointing is all a little tiny dots and dashes and things like that that were added later on by the by the Masoretic uh, Jews because the language had fallen out of usage and so they forgot what it sounded like. You know, when you're teaching a child, the child learns by hearing, right? But if the language falls out of use, then uh, you lose the sound of the language. So they had to come back and add the sounds back in because Hebrew is, is built on just consonants. There aren't any, there aren't any, uh, any vowels in the language. It's built on a tri, what's called a triradical root, three consonants. And then it's just all these different uh, prefixes and suffixes and changes take place with the language. So they had to come back and invent this vowel system to, uh, with all those little marks. And uh, that tells you what the sound is of the language and how it's pronounced. So, um, but yeah, it is a challenge to kind of look at it. Looking, it looks like a bunch of chicken scratches. Well, we'll we won't do any Hebrew anymore tonight. Let's uh, talk about the grammatical gap. And here's a verse from Jeremiah 26 up at the top. Thus says Yahweh, stand in the court of the house of Yahweh, and you shall speak to all the cities of Judah who have come to worship in the house of Yahweh. All the words that I have commanded you to speak to them, do not take away any word. So here again, we're back kind of to our foundational truths of what is the nature of the Word of God? Um, what is the nature of, of the Scripture that we have? Back to its God-breathed and the, um, the, the, the level down to which it is inspired is it's verbally inspired, right? Verbally God-breathed. So, so this is God's Word. These are God's words, and this also God's grammar and syntax, okay? Because he wants that word to be understood, and you have to have grammatical meaning to words in order for them to be understood and communicated. So we're back down. This is Roman numeral one. Back kind of down to our foundation, the literal method and the meaning from grammar, okay? God's word verbally inspired or God breathed. That's back to 2 Timothy 3. And God is honored when we understand the grammar of his words. And uh, we can only understand God's word through a literal, historical, grammatical method. Okay, We've kind of shortened it down to uh, talking about the literal method versus something that is um, allegorical interpretation or even spiritualizing the text of Scripture. Um, the meaning is the text. Okay, uh, We have to understand that right off, right off the bat. Unless they, do. Unless they do. Not that I know of, because according, if you listen to them, they would claim to be taking it literally. Yeah. Um, but when you really look at their conclusions, yeah. and you would kind of reverse engineer it, so I don't know any of them that come out and just say, yeah, we spiritualize the Bible, uh, or anything like that, you know. No, I've never, not that I know of, because I think pretty much they would all claim to be doing what we do, yeah. you know. Okay, yeah, like that. Historic liberalism, yeah. And so, and they might even say in that context, well, sure, we take that story literally. You know, we, we get a good little lesson out of it, you know. Um, yeah, that's, that's a good point. Classic liberalism, go clear back, they, they'll do that with, with the scriptures. And would probably be offended that, you know, anybody would want to take it literally. Okay? So, we can only understand God's word through a literal, historical, grammatical method. So this is uh, this is our approach because it 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 always comes back down to what are we dealing with? We're dealing with the word of God, and even if you go back and look at how the Bible was meant to be taken by God, He gave those commands to the nation of Israel. Did He hold them accountable for a very literal understanding of what He commanded them to do or not do? You better believe it, and they got it. They got that loud and clear. And um, even this verse at the top from the prophet Jeremiah, you know, do not take away a word. So it was even way back then, it was uh, it was uh, very important that they listened. You know, the great Shema of Israel, listen, Shema Israel. And so um, it's nothing new. It wasn't invented by the New Testament writers. It just goes clear back to every uh, clear back to every part of Scripture.
Well, the literal method and words, okay? So there's this thing called etymology, the history and development of the word. And um, most of this, in fact, the vast majority of this is, is done for you in our translations, okay? We have very excellent English translations, and we have lots of them. So we have, uh, we're really blessed. In fact, I know one New Testament scholar, he said that we are blessed with an embarrassment of riches. Not only do we have these great English translations, we have them at our fingertips, you know? You don't have to go off, drive off to a theological library to go find theology books. Uh, some of us had to do that <laughs> in our lifetime. But I mean, now everything is, it's right there. It's at our fingertips. And, and maybe that's part of the issue with the church. It's, it's a, it's an absolute tsunami of information. So how do you sort through it all, right? Because there's lots of voices out there. Um, kind of like in the garden, you know, there was, at first there was just one voice that they had to listen to. But when Satan slithered into the garden, what did he do? He didn't go up and bite Eve on the ankle. He didn't even go up to her and hiss, you know, and try and scare her out of the garden. He went up to her and he what? He spoke. And so now all of a sudden they have a second voice in the garden. Well, we have thousands of voices, right? Um, so um, even though we're blessed with all this information and all these great English translations and lots of tools to be able to uh, sort through these things, um, there's just also an awful lot of voices out there as well. But one of the things that we would do, we would, we would go back and maybe study the, uh, the history of a word and how it is, uh, how it was uh, how it came to be in the scriptures and how it was used. Remember, we talked about usage and a, uh, a study through time. We, meant, we mentioned it was a diachronic study, through time study. And we would see how a word is, was used. And we have this embarrassment of riches with the New Testament because there was classic Greek literature going back several centuries before the first, uh, the first century. So we have several centuries of, of literature where you can compare the usage of words and what, they, what it meant in that context back then. You also, we also have the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament made by Hebrew people. And so uh, that's there, second century. It was made over a period of time, but... Uh, that's there for comparison as well. And then we have, you move into the Koine period. So the Koine period, roughly 350 BC to 350 AD, depending on who you talk to, but about seven centuries in which the New Testament was written in the first century. Um, and then even you move beyond that into the patristic period, there's all this Greek literature out there. So there's a lots of, lot of things to study. You can see how they used words and, and how even those words there might be a word that was used a certain way, and then and then it dropped out of usage, and another word took over that same meaning. You can demonstrate that in Scripture. Uh, I was looking at one not too long ago that uh, you could actually see the word is still in the New Testament. In fact, it was the word anti, antichrist, antichristos. It's, it's there in that form, but it actually, another word took over its meaning, and it has particular reference uh, in the passage I was looking at was 2 Corinthians 5, where it says, one for all died, therefore all died, right? Very pertinent concerning the extent of the atonement. But that little word for, who pair, when they study that, they find out that that, that word basically took over for the word anti. Now, the word anti, in our language, we, we, it pretty much means against. You know, we have antibacterial, anti-missile uh, anti system, and that type of thing. So in our usage, it means against. Well, Antichrist will be against Christ, but how will he do it? He'll do it by substituting himself for Christ. And so Huper, in that context, took over the meaning of anti, and it essentially means in the place of one for all died, therefore all died. He died in the place of. So that's how words can 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 uh, fall out of usage and another word takes over, a different word takes over. And uh, that's just one example from Scripture. And uh, then B, we have usage. We've talked about usage. And uh, this is from Dr. Zuck. The use in this usus loquendi. Got to be a Latin term, right? So basically the use by the one speaking the customary meaning of the word when the writer used it. So we can do a diachronic study, a through time study, and look at the background of that word. But the important thing is to how was it used by that writer when he used it, okay? So that's called a synchronic study because that's, that's the important thing. 
What did it mean to him when he used it? And um, the same thing is true now. I mean, you remember when you got into like junior high and high school, you know, you start picking up on the jargon of the kids and how important that was to use some of those words. And uh, but then after a while, those words probably fell out of meaning. I'm sure the words that were uh, cool when I was in high school aren't so cool anymore. And maybe there was even different ones, you know. Um, so you can probably think of all kinds of uh, examples of that. Um, one that I always remember was uh, one of my wife's favorite movies was Gone with the Wind. Okay, classic movie made in 1939, I think it was. So when you watch that movie, in that movie, which is about the Civil War, 80 years prior, they use some words in the uh, in the in the movie that weren't used back then. You know they weren't because when Scarlett O'Hara is talking about how she's going to have, she doesn't say, I'm going to have victory. What she says is, I'm not going to let this lick us. We won't let it lick us. We won't be licked by this problem, you know. Well, that's probably not used too much anymore, right? Um, but if you go back and even after 1939, moving into World War II, you could find headlines and even movies and other people saying, you know, we're going to lick those Nazis in Europe, that type of thing. So it was common usage. And so that would be an anachronism, right, to have that as a uh, part of the um, part of the jargon of that movie that was, you know, 80 years after the fact. But that's just an example. Um, and then 40, 50, 60 years later, the word has fallen out of usage. And it sounds a little strange, you know, to hear that in a movie. But that's how they talked back then. Okay, so we're also going to be looking for lots of different things, similar or opposite words, how they're used, uh, synonyms, antonyms. Uh, one of the reasons I wanted to bring out 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 4, 2, which is a single passage. Now you take away that big black four there out of there. And I'm thankful that we have chapter breaks and versification and all that. But remember, those were not part of the original text. Those were put in, I think, middle of the 16th century or something like that. But what Paul is doing there, he's setting up that great command, that great charge. And uh, another a little grammatical issue, since we're talking about grammar, in the first two references to the Word of God, he does not use the article there. If you, just, if you look at it in the, in the uh, Greek, there is no article before sacred writings, and there is no article before the word graphe. It just says pasa graphe theopnistos. But when he finally gives that charge, he says preach the word, and that article is there. That's a particular use of the article in the Greek text called the anaphoric use of the article or article of previous reference. Okay, It's very common. It's common both in Hebrew and in, and in uh, the Greek text. And what he's simply doing there is, is stitching together that uh, passage. When he says preach the word, he's reaching back and collecting up the other two references because they're synonyms. Typically, it's done with the same, the same word, identical word. You can see this in uh, Revelation, like chapter 5 and 6, in the visions of John there. And uh, when I heard that, uh, you know, and read Andy Stanley's statement about we need to decouple ourselves from the Old Testament. Well, that's the only thing Paul's talking about there. It's the only thing he could be talking about is the Old Testament. That's all they had. So all three of those are references to the Old Testament, and he ends that great charge by saying, preach the word. Okay. So uh, Paul's in very sharp disagreement with uh, young Andy Stanley. He's wrong, and Paul's right. Okay. And uh, in fact, Andy Stanley would fit better into uh, the rest of that as far as people abandoning the Word of God. He's, he's leading his people to decouple themselves from the Word of God. Where does that come from? Okay. Anyway, there's an application of a grammatical issue there. So we're also um, going to look at context and the context of the text. So there's an immediate context, and then there's the a clause level, a sentence level, a paragraph level, chapter the book, and then we would maybe go out and find parallel passages, and of course, then the entire Bible. Because remember, we talked about the coherence of the whole Bible. And so that's going to be part of that. So uh, when we're talking about grammar, there we are, let's see here. Whoops. Oh, I think maybe, um, I won't show you this right now. We'll just go to triangles and tulips. This is just an illustration, okay? It's an illustration 
And I've tried to pick illustrations and put illustrations together where you can see grammatical issues pertaining to theological issues. Okay, so this may be uh, some of this may be a little bit polemic, because uh, I think you can. I want you to be able to see how many times theological wranglings or uh, disagreements back and forth uh, can be solved if you just simply look at consistently look at the the grammar of the text. So this is just an illustration, okay? And uh, I just call it of triangles and tulips because we're going to be talking about triangles. This may take you back to your uh, high school geometry class, maybe trig class, but it also has application to this thing we call tulip, which is the extent of the atonement which is what this part uh, is the part that uh, pertains to it. You may have heard somebody or uh, if you frequent the uh, the dark recesses of YouTube theology and uh, people arguing for the for the death of Christ being applied to all all right and they'll say all means all he died for all okay and it's it's very common and um might sound good, and maybe even they would have verses, you know, that they use, and probably somewhat out of context. Well, how about this word all, okay? So we're going to be talking about the word all and its relationship to triangles, okay? And we're going to be looking at three sentences, okay? There's going to be three sentences. They're going to be syntactic grammatical parallels. You'll see that. They only differ in the middle of the sentence, but they're going to be very similar sentences. And uh, we're going to be talking about the word all, but also the word every, and even the word world, because uh, uh, that has to do with this as well. But uh, let's just start out here, okay? All the angles of a triangle are less than two right angles, okay? Now, remember that uh, a right angle is a 90-degree angle, and so two right angles equals 180 degrees, okay? And second sentence, and you can see that they're grammatical and syntactic parallels, all the angles of a triangle are greater than two right angles. And the third sentence, all the angles of a triangle equal two right angles. Okay? Now, it may seem kind of strange, but all are true statements. All are true statements. Well, how could these all be true statements? Well, we'll go back. All are true statements. It all depends on how you understand the all in each statement. Okay? So, circle has 360 degrees, right? If you divide that circle in half with a straight line through the center connecting both sides called the diameter, now you have two 180-degree arcs. Okay, you can also divide that circle up into six 60-degree angles. They're all the same, six 60-degree angles, because it's 360 degrees. You can also connect the points that it contacts the circle with a line that's going to be equal to that radius line. So now you have six equilateral triangles, and all three of those angles are going to be the same. They're all three going to be 60 degrees. So you can also have a different shaped triangle. This is a 30-60 right triangle or a 30-60-90 triangle. Uh, you might recognize this as the one that's used to prove the Pythagorean theorem. Okay. But even though it's a different shape, it still has 180 degrees in the triangle. So by definition, every triangle has three angles totaling 180 degrees. Okay? So let's go back to our first one. All the angles of a triangle are less than two right angles. Well, how could that be true? Well, each individual angle is less than 180 degrees because they all add up to 180 degrees, right? So... That's a true statement. All the angles of a triangle are less than two right angles. Okay? How about all the angles of a triangle are greater than two right angles? Well, how many angles are in a triangle? There's three angles in a triangle. Three is greater than two, right? Anyone want to argue? It is. So, so you can see what's going on here. Is it all collectively or all individually? Or are we talking about the number? Okay? Well, how about the other one, the third one? All the angles of a triangle equal two right angles. Well, the sum of the angles in degrees in every triangle will always equal 180, and two right angles adds up to 180 degrees, so 180 equals 180. It's a true statement, okay? So here's the bottom line and, and hopefully the application for us. Ambiguous words like all, every, or even world, like the world-famous John 3.16, for God so loved the world must be understood by how the author is using them, and you must do this 
all the time, every time you read Scripture, or you won't know what in the world the text is saying, and you will be in a world of hurt. Okay? You like that? Welcome to my world. Okay? So, usage is important. And so you just can't take a word out of its context and say all means all. It, it may mean all, but it also may mean all without exception, but it could be all without distinction. You even see this in Scripture. Paul might say something like all, comma, both Jew and Gentile. That's an explanatory statement that tells you what he means by all, okay? So this is some of the, one of the things that we're looking for here is uh, how is it being used in its context? And that context could be the immediate context in a clause or a phrase or something like that. So any thoughts or questions you have on that? All of you got it all, right? Okay. So, again, how about, how about something else on context? Let's see here what we got. Okay, Oprah Winfrey's favorite verse here out of the Bible. The truth will set you free, okay? And what she doesn't do, and can't really blame her, uh, is that she doesn't see it and use it in its context. The truth will set you free. Well, when you look at the context that that's found in, John chapter 8, and that's verse 31, there it is, right there, the truth will set you free. But what does it say? If you abide in my word, well, let me start at the top. As he was saying these things, Jesus, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And of course, it went right over their heads, and they took great offense at being told that they weren't free, right? These Jews who were in an occupied city, occupied by the Gentile Romans, right? And had been occupied by successive uh, uh, foreign nations for centuries, you know, the Assyrians, then the, uh, the, the uh, Babylonians, and then the Medo-Persians, and then the Greeks, and now the Romans, right? They didn't get what he was talking about. So um, context is critical to understanding the meaning. If you go back and even you look at that, he even even drills down even more as to what their actual spiritual problem was. So the context, there's a variety of contexts. We looked last time, I think, at even some of the context outside the text of Scripture, you know, the historical context, the culture, the religion. All those things need to be taken into account. Um, okay, any thoughts you might have or questions so far? I'm trying to watch the clock a little bit better tonight than I did last time. How about First John five one? Well, we won't go there quite yet. Let's let's go up to Roman numeral three. I may save that for next time. We'll see how the time goes here. What about the literal method and morphology? That's on page 22 at the top. And what we're talking about here is basically how words are spelled. Okay, um, The jargon term inflection or spelling uh, is the form of the word. All languages are, in, the words are inflected. In other words, they go through spelling changes. Um, Hebrew, Greek, biblical languages are highly inflected. In other words, particularly Greek um, these words undergo spelling changes that uh, you could have dozens of different ways a word is spelled. Okay, and uh, so we're looking at how that word is spelled, and the, one of the challenges is you have to be able to look at those words and try to pick them apart as to their various parts and pieces, which is going to tell you a lot about those words. And morphology, this is B, determines function or the part of speech that it is. Form determines function. In order, also, word order and usage must also be considered as with what are called cognates with the same form. So when we say cognate, you could have noun, a noun, but it also has a verbal cognate. Or you're talking about a verb, and then maybe you'll have to make reference to the noun cognate form of that. There are times, and in English, an example, we have the same form or spelling for the cognates. And there's an example there in English, I fear a great fear. Commonly in English, words of emotion are used that way. They can be, they can, it's spelled the same, 
but it's it's the exact same word. So I fear, that's the verbal use, a great fear. That's the noun usage. So that particular construction is called a cognate accusative because the same word is the subject and the object of the verb. So don't want to get buried too far down in the weeds here, but this is part of what you're what is to be looked at when you're looking at the grammar of these these languages. And of course, there's these different families of words, kinds of words. You have the noun family. A noun names something. And then you have pronouns, which substitute for nouns. Adjectives, modifies or describes. Prepositions, these little words. I think there's 18 of them in, in Greek. And uh, they can have a, each one can have a range of meanings. So you have to look at that and figure out how it is used. This is part of the task of the interpreters. They're doing this as they interpret, hopefully. And there is no such thing as a, as a perfect interpretation. You might find a mistake or something that you disagree with and want to see it a different way, and that's fine. There are interpretations that are really theologically biased that you can point out. You can find them. Some of them kind of more, more notorious than others. And uh, you, you may need to go back and look at the original language and say, you know what, I think this would be a better usage in the context. Okay, people do that all the time. And uh, But these little words are very important. Then there's the verb family, and um, these are very important, of course. A verb asserts something about what a noun or pronoun is or does. Uh, then there are adverbs that modify or qualify the verbs. Conjunctions, they're very important. Little words like and are very critical to see how they're used. They connect words, phrases, or clauses interjections, words that express negation or a question or an exclamation, that type of thing. So there's, um, there's all different kinds of things that have to be looked at. That's why it's kind of a complex study, you know. And, um, but your, your English translations are going to do that for the most part for you. And uh, even if, they're, if they vary somewhat, you can, you can look at different translations. You can see how they vary. And so um, it's not like if you don't, if you haven't been trained or schooled or whatever in original languages, it's not that you can't figure out what the Bible says. I think you can really, without even studying Greek or Hebrew, you can know what Scripture says. Just simply, we have very excellent English translations. Okay, and then um, the literal method and syntax. Syntax, not a tax on sin. It's simply the way the words are used together in clauses, phrases, and sentences. In other words, when God inscripturated the word, those words and their relationship to each other is part of the inspiration of the word of God. Uh, very commonly, if, if a theological position, um, if the person doesn't like what a word or a clause says, they isolate one word out and they give it a different meaning. Okay, But so they break that bond in the, in the uh, syntactical relationship of those words. You can't do that. Okay, that's just as inspired as the words themselves. Okay, God put it in that construction. You can't go in there with your exegetical bolt cutters and break a word apart, isolate it, and then uh, make it say what you want it to say. Its meaning has to do with how it is used in connection with other words or its syntactical relationships. Okay, and there's a range of syntactical relationships. There's the phrase, clause, sentence. There's the word order and even repetition to communicate something. You know, when God repeats something, it's very important in Scripture. Uh, you know, holy, holy, holy. The seraphim were hovering around the, the throne of God in that vision of Isaiah. Holy, holy, holy. Very important there. Okay, so these are some of the things that we look at and try to, try to come to an understanding of when we talk about grammar. Grammar counts. Grammar is important. Okay, and uh, even the little the little words are very very critical. Um, so, any thoughts or questions you might have so far? Yeah, I wouldn't. <laughs> no. Well, and when you do read the New Testament scholars, they do talk about the different kinds of stylistic things. Um, but I have to come back back to our issue of inspiration and say they wrote what God wanted them to write, and it may there are stylistic differences, you know. Luke, Luke writes in more of a classic form. He wrote Luke Acts, and so even, even when he addresses Theophilus, he, there's that paragraph where he, it's very formal. He writes to 
this man, telling him why he's writing him. And um, other writers have different different styles, but I have to say that God still used that and inspired that to be part of the Scripture. So, you know, you, have, you even have scholars say, well, this guy's Greek was really crude, really rough. Okay, so what? Still communicated what, he, what God wanted him to communicate. And as far as I'm concerned, it's still it's just as inspired as a polished form, even though stylistically it might be different. So, you know. Okay, anything else? Yeah, Simon. That's part of the challenge of exegeting the text that's 2,000 years old plus 2,000 years old. Um, if I'm doing that, then it's they, they have an obligation to show me how and where. Prove that it's not what I say it means. I'm open to that. Show me. Never claim to be perfect in my understanding of the text of Scripture. Um, but we just simply use the tools that we have and um, maybe the uh, the obligation is on that person to prove that it means something else. That's part of the struggle that goes on back and forth. You know, um, uh, this is where you wind up with different different translations in 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 the same from the same set of manuscripts. How come this person translates it this way and this one doesn't? And there's other there are lots of factors that enter into that. And like I say, some there are some kind of notorious theologically biased translations. So we talk about range of meaning. Um, I'm thinking about one in particular where he, where it's translated the word, the little conjunction chi, which means and, and it's got a range of meaning. Well, the, the translator picked one that's rarely used. I mean, there's like a handful of usages, whereas chi is, in the book of Revelation, chi is used close to 1,200 times. Just look, even look through your English text and, 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 and. Often it's even translated then because it's in a temporal context, right? So it's, scholars even call it, the, that's used so much in, in the book of Revelation, they even call it chi-meter because it's, it's, like a, it's almost like a metronome, you know, tick-tock, tick-tock. So even John in his visions, and I saw, and I saw, then I saw. And so, so what what this particular translator did he he picked an extremely rare usage of it in a passage that is got some theological import and uh, so kind of came under some criticism for that but that it's in the NIV so it was made you know a few decades ago so i mean that happens there can be theologically biased translations you know and even uh i think Dave and I were talking about this one day Certain well-known, very familiar passages get sort of um, inscripturated themselves, and translators and translation teams who want to sell their translation are a little bit hinky about changing that. Okay, and it's just it gets locked into these translations. Okay, and so you have to just sort through those things. But uh, I mean, I. Anybody's open to be criticized, and it just you just have to you know state your case and say why do you think it has to be something different? That's part of the part of the uh, part of the process that we go through. So, okay, anything else? Yeah, I'm probably not qualified to comment on that, but one of the amazing things about Hebrew text is how meticulously they transcribe that. So when they found the great Isaiah scroll in 1947, and they compared it with the earliest scroll that they had, predating it by a thousand years, they're so they're not identical, but they're so close. It's amazing. Okay, so there's a thousand years of transcription by these people who were just absolutely meticulous in how they did it. That that how do you argue with it? And I even I even um, fact. I read a quote just not too long ago about even the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament made by Hebrews, and it was uh, Walt Kaiser. Quote from him. He said there's there's essentially um, nothing in that translation that we can criticize as far as its accuracy. So they they were really meticulous about what they did, and so, and the thing is, we have so many manuscripts that we ha- we can compare. Now, if you just had one manuscript, it'd be kind of tough. But we have thousands of them. You know, there's thousands of New Testament manuscripts. So we have all this material to compare with. 
And um, the critics say, well, you see, you have so many manuscripts with all these variants. Well, all, what that does is, when you really understand how it works, is that, that makes it easier to verify because you have more to compare with and so on, that type of thing. So, I mean, the manuscript evidence and, and how it's evaluated and textual criticism and all that, it's, um, I mean, I heard one New Testament scholar say they, they think we're probably, with what we have available to us, somewhere around 96 to 98% accuracy as to what was the original text. Small things, and where there is something that's in question, it, it doesn't affect or impact any basic doctrine. So I think you, and I think that's because of the providential working of God to preserve the transmission of the text down through history. Okay, so I'm trusting it. I'm going to save page 23, where we talk about syntactic grammatical parallels for next time, because it's a little lengthier, and I think um, I think we'll we'll just save that for next time. And uh, we'll just do a, a uh, to end things up tonight. Let's talk about small words, okay? Small words—they're important. So, if you would turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter thirteen, Acts chapter thirteen, and this is an example of how a tr- the translations may not be able to translate certain words. Um, they probably could if they wanted to, but translation teams usually have some stated philosophy that they're trying to achieve when they make a, uh, make a translation. They want to have something that's more literal than the last one or maybe less literal. And, of course, there's this range that you can find um, where, where way over here on one side you have a paraphrase, you know, and some paraphrases are better than others. And as it moves over toward a more formal equivalence, it's sometimes called, and then even a, a word for word, um, uh, it's not even, wouldn't even qualify as a translation, but just a word for word uh, uh, kind of a translation, which personally I like those better because <clears throat> I don't care too much about style when you're really trying to look underneath the English translation. But uh, we're just going to look at one example of how small wor- words are really, really important and it can, can impact the meaning of the text. So Acts chapter 13, we have the uh, situation at Antioch. And uh, we talked about Antioch, and it's the Antioch that's up in northern Syria, sometimes called Antioch on the Orontes or the Orontes River. And that became the uh, focal point of uh, apostolic teaching and training. And then, of course, as we're going to see, the outreach to the Gentile world. Okay, So um, if you look at chapter 13 of Acts, go back one verse to verse 25 of the previous chapter. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Okay? And then chapter 13, verse 1. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of of Cyrene, Menaean, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Okay? That's what the English text says. Your text probably says something pretty close to that. Um, There's a little word there. The grammarians call a word like that a particle because it's so small. Okay? Delta eta, day, it's pronounced. And in the Acts 13.2 sentence, it's, this is the actual Greek sentence. And uh, I just made a uh, real crude word-for-word translation there. And uh, it's going to read much like what I just read from the ESV. But I did not translate that little word day there because it's not translated in your English translations. Okay, And uh, so basically... It reads, Afarisate de moiton barnaban kai salon esta ergon ha proskeklemai autus. Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Okay? So that's pretty basic, except that little word de, it's not, it's not translated. Okay? And 
when you look that word up and you check it out, what you find is, here's Thayer's lexicon. That little word, joined to imperatives and hortatory subjunctives. Now, an imperative is a command force verb. You can tell by how it's spelled. A hortatory subjunctive, hortatory means uh, exhortation, you know, a structure, a sentence that's used to encourage people to do certain things. Subjunctive mood is the mood of possibility or probability, so that the sentence would read something like, that you may do this, okay? So that's what that means. Well, when it's, when it's joined to either imperatives or hortatory subjunctives, it signifies that the thing enjoined must be done forthwith at once so that it may be evident that it is being done. And A.T. Robertson, his grammar, he says there is a note of urgency in aphorisita de in Acts 13.2 and also Doxosite day in 1 Corinthians 6.20. Now we're going to be looking at that one. Those are the two instances in the New Testament where there, where there's an imperative. Everything else is going to be a hortatory subjunctive. Okay? So what happens here when you actually take a look at this? Well, it could read and should read set apart now, right now, make it happen. That's the sense of it. For me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. Okay? Now let's go back up and look at this sentence. You get the picture. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, and I'm going I'm to put the word in, set apart now, right now, for me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. Right? And what's the response? Then... After fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Okay? They got it. They got it loud and clear. In fact, right when they got done fasting and praying, they commissioned them and off they went. Right? And then look at verse 4. So being sent out by who? The missions committee? Uh, No. Sent out by the Holy Spirit. They went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogue of the Jews, because it was Paul's habit to always go to the Jew first in, in obedience to uh, Romans chapter 116. We talked about that last time. Always go to the Jew first. And uh, verse 6, oh, and they had John to assist them. John Mark is with them. Verse 6, when they had gone through the whole island as far as Pephos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. Now, they had to deal with this guy. I won't get into it, go into all that, but it's very interesting to see. Dave's been talking about being spirit-filled. You read that passage and you find out how a spirit-filled apostle deals with a false teacher. Okay? And it's pretty tough. And uh, he uh, actually he goes blind for a period of time. Then verse 12, then the proconsul believed, even though this, this went on, when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Verse 13, now Paul and his companions set sail from Pephos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia, and on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down, back to being uh, to the Jew first, okay? So what did they do? They responded to that little word that's not in our translations, okay? There's Antioch in Syria, way up there, and then it says they went to Seleucia, right there. Seleucia is the seaport that serves the city of Antioch. That's about 38 linear miles from Antioch, and then the next thing it says, they went to Salamis. They sailed to Salamis on the east coast of Cyprus, and then they traveled the entire length of Cyprus. So that sea journey is about 130 miles as the crow flies. And the trip through the island of Cyprus is about 90 miles to come to Paphos, which is another seaport, got on a boat, traveled all the way up to Perga, which is about 175 miles, and then up inland up to the other Antioch up there, Antioch, Pisidian Antioch, Okay. So even the narrative tells you that these men were on the move, okay? And uh, in response 
to that little word and that command from the Holy Spirit. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. And that's why I think later on down in that passage, it, uh, when he deals with this Elymas the magician, it says in verse 9, But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, now here's what a spirit-filled apostle says to a false teacher, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and so on. So um, that's a little side note since we've been talking about the filling of the spirit, right? You listen to some people and they would say, well, if you're going to be spirit-filled, you have to be, you know, uh, absolutely milk toast and mild and gentle. Now, I'm not an apostle, and I'm not dealing with this situation, but there's an example of being spirit-filled, and he's pretty pointed with this fellow. Okay? But, yeah, I think when the Spirit tells you to do something, and we would get, I think, our main understanding of this from the text of Scripture. You know, of course, Spirit helps us understand that. Um, we, have a, we have that same priority. Okay? Yeah. I have no way of knowing why they didn't do it. I, I don't know. Um, I would just have to, I would be guessing. There's no such thing as a perfect translation because you're moving from one language into another. And there's not always an equivalent word or a word that means exactly, even though you know how, what they meant, maybe even your, your translation philosophy that you've all agreed to work under, if you use three or four or five words that communicate what that word really means, they'd say, well, that's more of a, uh, more of a paraphrase. You've paraphrased it. We need. So yeah, I mean, and and there's there's other forces involved. Some of them are just flat out financial. I mean, it's very expensive to imagine the time it takes to put all that together and all the different people. They have to they have to sell it, right? They they you hate to think of it, but uh, money can be a hermeneutic. It really can. I mean, it's you know. Uh, okay. Any other thoughts or questions you might have? That's just one example of how small words make a big difference, and there's just many, many more um, that that you could uh, you could come up with. And so next time we'll start out probably going back on page 23 and spend uh, the time looking at the syntactic grammatical parallels and and why it's valuable to be able to do that. Because um, maybe in partial answer to Simon's question about well, how do you know? How do you know that? You're right about that. Well, one of the things you can do that when you're exegeting a text, if you come up with some grammatical statement with the geeky, greeky, gobbly, geeky stuff, somebody might say, hey, you just made all that up just so you can make it say what you want to say. Okay, fair enough. What if I can go out in the context and find syntactical grammatical parallels that validate that, that principle? Okay, and this is part of the, part of the validating process that the exegete should go through and to be able to, to validate it. And so we're going to do that with uh, 1 John 5, 1. And um, the word primarily is, is the word there at the end of that first sentence, uh, gigenetai, uh, having been born. And uh, it actually occurs in that passage uh, 10 times. It occurs 10 times between, between uh, 1 John 2.29 and 1 John 5.18. I've picked out some of those. But that gives you that gives you ten different usages of that word in the context by that same writer in that same book that you can compare the meaning with. Okay, which is very valuable to to validate your exegetical conclusions. Okay, anything else? Any other questions you might have? This is a big. This is a huge, massive uh, category: grammar, and uh, you know. It's, uh, they used to have grammar schools for little kids. I don't think they have those anymore. <laughs> and, and, and the thing is, or personal thing, when I went to seminary, I was kind of a second career person. I mean, I hadn't, I hadn't, Mrs. Smith's fifth or sixth grade grammar class was, you know, way in the past. And, uh, at the book room where you go and you buy, you know, you come up to the countertop with all these big stack of books for the semester, right here in Iraq, they had all these little pamphlets, and it was just basic bonehead English grammar, okay? And I bought one, and I still have it. It's right there on my desk. Because <laughs> I had to learn what, a, what is a pronoun? What is it? I had, you know, because, you know, we don't, we don't think in terms of what are these things. We use them, 
but uh, you know it's different than when you're looking for them and you have to identify them in uh, in something like a foreign language. Okay, so um, I am not an expert in biblical languages. I'm a student and will always consider myself a student. So, but uh, I've gotten some helps along the way. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.